A wise little green puppet once said that the fear of loss is the path to the dark side. But what if I told you that embracing the marketing dark funnel is a pathway that leads to many abilities, none of which are unnatural? That's our main topic for today as we dive into the world of how your audience really shares the content that they enjoy. Whether it's through screenshots or text messages or even a Slack channel, your audience is sharing content through what's called the marketing dark funnel. And this show, we're going to cover why we should embrace it. Welcome into another episode of Cyberly. I am your host, Blythe Grumley. And on this show, we cover B2B marketing, we cover the attention economy and how it all fits into the world of logistics. And in today's episode, we are talking about embracing the dark funnel in marketing. Amanda Navitidad, I probably mispronounced that last name, so apologies for that in advance. Uh, she's telling us about her marketing journey and where she sees the most opportunities for businesses today. And then we're going to dive into a little bit of how to be a really good podcast guest and then some of the best TikToks that we've seen so far this week. So come with me as I take you down the path of the dark side. And Seth Godin, who is a sort of the marketing guru, and he has been for years, but he said that the key to marketing is simply selling something that people want to buy. Yet marketers are faced with a shiny new tech toy seemingly every other month. These toys, which are affectionately referred to as MarTech, are basically SaaS-based tools like HubSpot and some of these other platforms out there that help you as the marketer make your job a little bit easier in, in order to track conversions. Only these tools usually tend to prove their value and not necessarily the value that you're bringing to your customers. They do well in a lot of different areas, but as far as proving the ultimate value to your customers, that remains to be seen for, for some of these tools that are out there. We call this the marketing dark funnel. So let's take a look at this tweet from entrepreneur Justin Jackson, who is building a podcast hosting and analytics company, where he says that I used to invest heavily in marketing automation, tracking, attribution, configuring funnels, and retargeting. But after 13 years of doing marketing for SaaS companies, I'm convinced that 90% of it is unnecessary. He goes on to tweet in, in, in several different threads that he's, he's building essentially an analytics company for podcasts, which that previous tweet might be seen as kind of a contradiction to what he's building, but I agree with him 100%. Because Justin goes on to reiterate what Seth said, that when you sell something that people want to buy, that's the heavy lifting that you need. So the, and then he goes on, there was another tweet that he followed it up with that I thought that was really poignant, where he says the worst products require more marketing, more convincing, more funnels, more drip campaigns, more manipulation. For indie entrepreneurs, the best products are the products people already want to buy, and it shouldn't take a bunch of effort to convince them. Now, I know there are probably many of you, especially in marketing, who are screaming, but how do I prove the value of what I do, especially to the C-suite? And it comes down to educating the C-suite on balancing the art and science of marketing and embracing the dark funnel. So let's talk about those five steps and how marketers can embrace this change. So the dark funnel is essentially where content is shared and it's impossible to track. So think of an article that you found that you really loved and you shared it in a text message with a friend or you shared it in a Slack group. Having a company meeting is probably going to follow that where everyone's going to discuss that same article or that same video. And then a recommendation is made to the CTO in order to buy that software. Now, the CTO will likely Google search your company and then book a demo right on your website in order to have that conversation. And if you were going to attribute that, if you were going to create an attribution report, that report would show that that lead came in through Google's organic search. It wouldn't show that all of the different articles that you had shared and that the team had talked about previously and all the value that they brought. And so what would happen in that case is a, a lot of, especially companies that are not very experienced in marketing, or maybe they, they have someone on their team that isn't experienced in marketing that can know, you know, sort of balancing the, the, the art and the science of it. And, and, and what would happen is that they would make a bad investment. They would see, okay, well, maybe we should stop investing in, in some of this content that's being shared in the dark funnel, and we should probably just invest more in organic SEO. And that's where a lot of the, the attribution reports that while they provide some value and, and, and some perspective, they don't give you the full picture, which is why 
They call it the dark funnel. So let's talk about five key steps in order to embrace the dark funnel instead of resisting it. So step one, letting go of being able to measure everything. When you're in the trenches of a good marketing campaign, you can feel what's working. And chances are, if you're measuring everything, your your, your data is probably going to be a little skewed to begin with because more than 40% of all traffic on the web is bot related. If you don't have filters set up either through your HubSpot account or either through Google Analytics, you're probably going to be seeing a lot of different bots that are accessing your site and you won't be able to pull any sort of quantitative data from those reports. Then there are entire businesses that are built based off of combating against click or, or click fraud, where it's essentially the same kind of bots or maybe a competitor or maybe someone else that is clicking on that ad and it's it's essentially costing you money. But it's one of those things where it it it's it still exists in in the world of marketing, especially when you're advertising, is avoiding that ad click fraud. And then studies show that as you advertise more on social media then your organic searches also pick up as well. And so that's another instance where if you are advertising a ton and then your audience will see the ad, sometimes because of privacy reasons, they will go straight to Google and they'll Google search your company and they'll go through your website and access your website that way. And then what happens on that attribution side is that you forget about the uh, you forget about the advertising that brought awareness about your company to begin with. And then you choose to invest in the things that, or you choose to not invest in the things that are working and rather go into the path of the things that are showing up on the attribution report instead. Alex Lieberman, he's the chairman of Morning Brew, who has a fantastic email newsletter. If you're not already subscribed, they, they have a ton of different email newsletters that you can go and subscribe to with different segments. Um, but he said that the, uh, it's basically another example is Olympics and brand marketing suffer from the same challenge of attribution. And his tweet goes on to say, it's difficult for Apple to know how shot on an iPhone billboards impact long-term value. And it's difficult for Tokyo to know that its $28 billion investment impacts long-term country value. We talked about the Olympics on last week's episode and and how often they are showing uh, or, or, or how much they're spending on these Olympics and how much has gone into over more than a decade of planning that's gone into actually uh, putting on this Olympics right now, even though there's no fans in the stands and it's a little bit different um, of, of a viewing experience, but a lot of that value is still there. But how are they going to measure that value long term, especially from an attribution standpoint? So it's really looking at the bigger picture. Now, step two is staying away from tools that promise automation for everything. Automation makes your job easier, but it doesn't necessarily result in a good customer experience. Uh, A good example that I have is is something that I've done recently where I've talked about this on a previous show where I had a podcast automation set up to where a blog post pulls in a new podcast. Anytime a podcast is uploaded, it pulls in that, that podcast episode as a blog post. And my thinking was, is that, okay, if I can automate this part of it, then I can automate the notification to the audience who's already email subscribers. And I could just shoot them over an email, letting them know that a new episode is live. Only the problem with the formatting of the email newsletter when I sent this out, it wasn't the best. And it resulted in 40 unsubscribes. That's a perfect example of something that I thought of as a, that would be a good experiment. It would be good for the audience. In reality, it was good for me. And the audience told me with their unsubscribes that it was not a good experience for them. So that's something that I pulled away from from the the flow and my marketing mix in general but that's you know staying away from those tools that promise to automate everything because it really does impact the customer experience and and that's really what your your main focus should be on step 3 is treating channels appropriately as intent based or awareness based now awareness based channels are social media they're linkedin instagram tiktok etc Intent-based channels are usually a buying intent search phrase on Google, filling out an RFQ form on your website, um, and then email, depending on how it's used, can be both intent and awareness. A good tip I heard is to treat social media in the same way that you would treat those email nurture campaigns with a mix of educating about a problem your target audience is suffering from, how your solution fixes that problem, and then with a mix of brand awareness, educational, and product marketing. There really is no one size fits all in this case, but your, your mix 
should be a mix of those intent-based channels and awareness-based channels. Now, step four is avoiding the MQL hamster wheel of gathering these low-intent leads. Now, I think most of us in marketing are, are, are have already accepted that the you know the 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 days of downloading an ebook and getting that customer's email address and reaching out to them in order to become a customer those days are long over they they haven't really worked since the early 2000s or really the late 2000s I should say like 2010s but I'm not exactly sure what we're referring to with that decade of of a time frame that's a little off topic but avoiding the MQL hamster wheel of collecting these low intent leads because it's all about your awareness channels and taking your content and, and building out unique video, not unique videos, but videos that are talking about a unique feature or a, a unique use case of your product or service and then putting it out there onto your awareness channels. It's not about chasing people down when they haven't showed intent. And then finally, step five is getting used to talking with your audience, having more conversations with leads and customers, sending out surveys to your current customers, having those one-on-one conversations with your customers or even leads if you can. Um, Get used to asking folks how they heard of you and what made them want to reach out because that's really going to drive the rest of your ship, especially from a web copy perspective, from email, from social media, because then you can have those real world conversations. And especially if you work in marketing, if you can set up that flow of of what talking to a lead looks like, instead of it going directly to sales, if you can set it up appropriately, then you can set it up to where you can be that first line of contact with that lead. And then you can ask some of these specific questions in order to figure out what were those trigger points? What kind of content did they see? How did they hear about you? And what made them ultimately go to your website and fill out a form or what made them pick up the phone and actually give you a call. If you can be that first line of of offense or defense for your customers, then that's really going to go a long way as far as your market research and insight is concerned. And also having these conversations, it's the perfect response to the C-suite who is going to demand, I mean, in reality, they're going to demand that you back up your assumptions and your theories and your experiments with some kind of insight. And what better way to do that than to have these real life conversations with both customers and leads, because then you can provide those real value points and, and, and use a lot of that insight to not only build out better customer service, better support, and it it could also lead to a better product roadmap for you and your company. So embracing the dark funnel and the basics of selling something that people want to buy, because I'm going to throw in a couple more Star Wars quotes here because I can. It is the fear of loss may be a path to the dark side, but embracing the marketing dark funnel is a pathway that leads to many abilities, none of which are unnatural. So as we we dive into more of these topics, let's go ahead and bring in our first guest. She knows the power of dark funnels in marketing. Let's go ahead and bring in Amanda. Welcome to the show, Amanda. Hi, thank you for having me, Blythe. Thank you for coming on the show. I've, I, I followed your work on, on Twitter for, for quite a while. And then to see you join uh, the Spark Toro team, it just makes perfect sense. We'll, we'll dive into that a little bit. But it, with your job title with Spark Toro, I, I thought that this was interesting because you're listed as the marketing architect. What exactly does a marketing architect do? Yeah, I know. It's pretty wild. It's not a real title, right? <laughs> um, but that kind of speaks to the unconventional nature uh, for which I joined the company and for just how um, co-founders Rand Fishkin and Casey Henry are thinking about hiring. So, you know, when I first joined, um, they they basically were like, hey, make up your own title. What do you want to be? Um, and the more I thought about it, the more I realized a lot of what I'm going to be doing is setting the foundation for marketing, setting the foundation for customer success or user success, and essentially building a framework for have letting us have a very good product long-term. So I ended up calling it marketing architect because a lot of it is foundational and not all of it is marketing specific, right? You, you notice I pointed out customer success and product. So a lot of it is, you know, it's it's kind of broad. Um, and then also it's just, um, it is both uh, a tactical and strategic role where I'll be, you know, working on things that inform longer-term marketing strategy, but I'm doing the work myself. Right, I'm gonna I'm gonna be in there managing the Twitter account, 
um, managing our events and stuff like that. So really, it's 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 what you hinted to earlier. It's really about building that foundational uh, approach to your your customer. And I love that you brought up customer success mm-hmm. uh, because that, that's something that is often just ignored. But it leads to so many additional successes. It's not just a you know a name in and of itself. But you've been in marketing for a long time. But you actually got started as a writer and more behind the scenes producing roles. How do you think that that early on career experience has propelled you to where you are today? Yeah. So it's, you know, it's kind of funny. I feel I've been doing marketing for a long time. Yes. To your point, but in in a way it's kind of a third career or a third life for me. Started out in journalism, then pivoted into food by way of culinary school and working in test kitchens and then getting into marketing by way of that food experience. So a lot of my early experience was really focused on writing, writing well, editing and working quickly. I think you can imagine some of the corollaries between working in a newsroom and working in a kitchen where things are hot and things are sharp. So that's kind of given me this uh, ability to, to, to think quickly on my feet, make decisions pretty quickly, um, and you know just get things moving in terms of writing effective copy. Yeah, because I, I when I tell other companies it, it, when they ask like what should be their first hire, I always say a writer because a writer can just use their skill set in so many different ways. Whether it's their video or podcast or email, that hiring the writer should be the the first step. I, I I'm right there with you. I I started out myself as a writer as a blogger. Um, and then moved into all of these different skill sets. But you really have to hone in on that writing skills before it, yeah. anything else can evolve from that. Absolutely. Absolutely. To your point, I think when you when you can write effectively, it means you're thinking clearly. It means you're writing persuasively. And it informs the rest of your work, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, think, I think for you, a, one of the big reasons you're such a good host is because you're a good writer, right? You're empathetic. You know what lands and what doesn't land, and you can translate that into onto you know a video interview. I love that. Thank you for that. For that, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> now, uh, for 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 both of us, we all or, or both of us have experience in in both B two C and and B two B marketing, and and as. I guess sort of these industries start to evolve. I'm starting to see so many more similarities where where B2C almost has the edge on experimentation, where B2B is sort of slower to follow, but it seems like they're starting to catch up with each other. Are you noticing that within the the, the two worlds that they're slowly blending together or are there things that that, uh, B2B can borrow from B2C? Yeah, I agree with you. I think you know, I think for a long time, some of the some of the savviest B two B marketers have been noticing and have been saying, "Hey, B two B marketing doesn't have to be boring. You can still talk in a in a fun or whimsical or conversational way." And I think more B two B brands are seeing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know some of the challenge or some of the challenges there were, and maybe we can take a step back a second too. Um, I think a lot of the challenges are, you know, has to do with price points and sales cycles, right? So in B2B, you're typically selling, you know, services, software, or something in bulk to another business. So each sale or each client is more money, right? Compared to B2C marketing. And generally the sales cycles are a lot longer, which makes sense, right? You might impulse buy a pack of gum, a t-shirt or some lipstick, but you wouldn't impulse buy $10,000 $10,000 a year software on behalf of your company. So, right. <laughs> right. And, and to your point, you know, you alluded to this a few minutes ago, right? Where, where B2C can, can experiment a little more quickly. It's, it's because of that direct response, right? And so I think, you know, as we think about what B2B can borrow from B2C, I do think it's it may be easier said than done, but I think it's, a you know, it's what I said earlier about being conversational, being direct, maybe even being playful or a little bit edgy, and I can understand where this is really tough for marketers, right? Because in B2B, you know, we know where you have the higher price points, longer sales cycles. Marketers have come to expect that we're not really selling to one person in a company. You know, we're selling to a team. We're selling to maybe an IT director, their VP, the chief technology officer, and the CEO. So when you zoom out and think of it that way, it's, it's understandable to see how there are a lot of different messages to create and a lot of people to create those messages for. So mm-hmm. I want to say, you know, what B2B can borrow from B2C is that sort of, you know, taking a stance, right? Being that, being playful, edgy, being something to somebody. Um, 
understanding that that's that may be easier said than done. Well, you you do a great job of it because you mentioned being playful with some of your content, and and I. I'm a big Disney fan. I love someone that could throw in a Disney gift, especially when talking about B2B marketing. What are some of your, your favorite franchises or, or movies to use gifts from? <laughs> to use gifts from? Um, oh my gosh. I, uh, I think anything Kristen Wiig, anything from Bridesmaids, that makes me laugh. Yes. <laughs> the, the Mean Girls gif of Regina George saying, get in, loser, we're going shopping. That just makes me laugh. Uh, and not a gift. Oh, it is a gift, but the one of Elmo like on fire with oh on yeah fire in the background. I don't know why I love that so much. It really speaks to my essence, maybe. <laughs> but all the I, gifts, I love all of yeah, them. Yeah, I, I think we've all been in, in, in sort of Elmo's experience from time to time, no matter what career you're working in. What's your favorite you, gift? What's your what's oh, the one that speaks to you? I would say any of them. Disney is obvious is is a big. I'm two hours away from Orlando, so I'm a huge Disney nerd. Um, so I would say that one. Um, I, I I started off the show with a bunch of like Star Wars memes, so I was looking at a bunch of Star Wars memes earlier, and I thought, gosh, I should do this more often just to spice <laughs> it up a little. Um, but those are some of my favorite franchises. Um, I try to use Lord of the Rings too, but not that Ooh, many people one. know. Uh, you know, get the context behind it. Um, so I try to steer clear away from those. But I think you know, Marvel and Disney are just go-getters because then uh, most people understand what I'm trying to say. Absolutely. Um, so, so another platform, obviously, where gifts are are used a ton is is Twitter because it, it it has a different kind of a swagger to it than other social media platforms. And you're very active on Twitter. Would you say that that's your favorite social media platform, or do you have others that that are on your radar? Um, it's really just Twitter for me. I mean, you know, I I I prob I still have a Facebook account, but I don't use it. I just don't. Uh, and then I use Instagram um, often, just for for close friends and family. But Twitter is where I spend most of my time. I would say. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you can tell with the tweets that that you put out because they get a you know obviously really good engagement and they're they're really a, you know just a lot of fun. I feel like that that's the platform where you have a lot more fun on. Um, mm-hmm. And then TikTok, are you are you on TikTok at all? Are you going to jump on that train or are you uh, avoiding it? I'm I'm a, I'm kind of avoiding it because <laughs> I know how fun it is. Like there have been times where I've been scrolling through and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to look at a couple, and then you know, two hours go by. Right? <laughs> what did I do? So I haven't been on TikTok in a little while um, because I love it too much. <laughs> it's a right? Problem for it's me. very it's highly addicting, and I I now have a good excuse that I can say now it's for work because I've started adding a segment to the show which will will debut later on. Uh, but like the the best TikToks I've seen, so now that's my excuse. <laughs> in order to, to, you know, I guess say it's for work now, it's right? Valid. It's two hours Absolutely valid. <laughs> <laughs> now for your newest gig, mm-hmm. you are, or for folks who don't know, you, you mm-hmm. have joined SparkToro, which is, well, why don't, why don't I let you explain what yeah. SparkToro is and, and, and how you ultimately join the company? Yeah. So SparkToro is an audience research startup. Um, we give marketers or, you know, anybody really marketers, entrepreneurs, small businesses, um, the, the data that they need to make better decisions about marketing. So, you know, I think anybody who's maybe new to marketing or hey, any solopreneur, they might be thinking, I need to get my product or my uh, my services out there. Maybe I'll just run some Facebook ads or run some Google ads. And yes, you can do that and that can be effective. Uh, but you're also throwing money at something in, in hopes of it coming back to your business. With SparkToro, we put a lot of the you know quantity behind the qualitative data. So you might be wondering, so using this as an, as an example, we have in our audience here a lot of people who work in logistics. In the SparkToro tool, I did a search for people in logistics, people who frequently talk about logistics. Um, I saw that other phrases they might be talking about pretty frequently are, you know, supply chain, uh, chain logistics. And then from there, I'm able to see, well, what are some of the websites that people in this audience frequent, right? What are the social accounts they follow? What are the titles they might hold? What are some of the demographics about these people? And then using that information and being a little bit more savvy about how you're marketing, right? So Mm -hmm. sticking with the logistics and supply chain examples, you know, I'm seeing that um, some social accounts that people who say those words a lot follow most are supply chain brain, supply chain network, supply chain digital. Um, maybe some hidden gems are MIT supply chain, inbound mm-hmm. logistics. 
um, accounts like that. So then maybe people in your audience can be thinking, okay, maybe I'll follow these accounts. Maybe I'll read some of their content. Maybe I'll reply back to these accounts in hopes of raising my profile within this audience. And so it's really, it feels like a tool to really help out not only market research, but maybe put your buyer personas or, or, or generating your ICP almost on steroids. Is that a safe Absolutely. assumption? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, awesome. I'm just saying that with my arms raised. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> many years ago, you know, when I worked, I used to work at Fitbit, the fitness tracker company on the B2B side, where we sold into uh, the HR and benefits space. And um, an agency that we worked with told us, hey, you know, people in the HR and benefits space, they tend to read Entrepreneur Magazine, Psychology Today, and they're on LinkedIn pretty often. And this was before SparkToro was invented. And back then, I, as the head of content who worked very closely on events and demand generation, I realized, oh, if my audience is reading Entrepreneur and Psychology Today, that tells me they see themselves as entrepreneurs. Hmm. They see themselves as savvy about people. They want to understand what motivates people. And that really shifted my mindset about how I marketed to them. I no hmm. longer was thinking, oh, HR people, they're thinking about HR. Yes, but they're <laughs> in HR because they see themselves as in the business of people. And that hmm. my, that that shift in mindset can really it can really do a lot for the way you market to your audience. It can help you understand them on a deeper level, can help you connect with them and even tap into some shared terminology. And SparkToro helps you do that really easily at scale. And that, would you say that that's a safe assumption of, of why you ultimately joined the team is, is because you were a big fan of the, the information that they were providing? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of everything we've talked about so far, right? It's my, it's, it was my frequent activity on Twitter. That was where, um, founder uh, Rand Fishkin and I had connected. Uh, we just kind of became friends through Twitter. And then he ended up visiting uh, my hometown, just, you know, by coincidence. And we met up for lunch with his wife. It just felt like old friends hmm. uh, seeing to get, see, like, hanging out for the first time in a couple of years. So it was just really nice. And then, um, but, you know, aside from that, that was what I've talked about with HR and benefits and marketing to those people. That's really like what, 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 you know, why what attracted me to SparkToro itself, right? Where this is solving problems that I had been trying to solve mm. with great difficulty for many years. Um, and so that really speaks to me as a marketer and to someone who's always been on scrappy teams and wants to be smarter about doing all the other marketing campaigns. Now, market research and, and finding out what your audience wants, especially when it comes to, to modern day activities or, or modern day strategies and tactics, it, it, there's a lot of people in logistics and, and, and transportation that really struggle with, with marketing. And, mm -hmm. and you have some actual experience working for a shipping company called ShipBob. And there, how did you, what was sort of, a, I guess, a breakthrough moment in, in within your time at ShipBob mm -hmm. that really said, oh, wow, that there's a lot of potential here for this industry that we can capitalize on? Oh, absolutely. So um, I wasn't at ShipBob for too long, but I will say, you know, the things that, that those, those really key moments for me there was really seeing how deeply passionate the employees at ShipBob are about mm. solving problems in supply chain logistics. Um, I think in, what's unique about this industry is that for, for people who don't work in this industry, it seems simple, right? Get mm. me the thing that I need at the time that I need it. Sounds, I mean, I think that in essence is simple, but we all know too well here that a lot of stuff, a lot of work and a lot of logistics go into making some things look seamless. Right. So um, seeing the opportunities there. And then I think what was what's also interesting, I think in the fact that logistics is something that people can sort of understand easily at a high level, getting ordering the thing, getting the thing. Sounds right. simple. Um, people can connect that easily. And so I think there's tremendous opportunity in content, which they have been, you know, take capitalizing on, right? They've been, they have a great blog that really makes it easy to understand how to get started with your supply chain or, or managing your logistics in a smarter way. Um, but I think there's also such a great opportunity in telling the stories of these entrepreneurs. 
Um, one of the things that has that's so fascinating to me about ShipBob specifically is I think for people who don't know the industry might think, oh, the biggest competitor is Amazon. That's it. If Amazon does this thing, then like that's it. But it's so not the case, right? You you can be a ShipBob customer and an Amazon customer. One does not eliminate the other. Um, and I think what's interesting about ShipBob is that truly the, the, the biggest competitor are the customers themselves. It's the people who have built their businesses out of their homes, out of their garages, who are still who are still picking and packing their own boxes, driving to UPS and dropping it off. Those are mm. the biggest competitors. And so the opportunity for ShipBob is to really elevate these customers and tell their stories and to tell these stories of how, hey, here's how I graduated from packing out of my basement to now having my own uh, my own spot in a warehouse where they're doing all this for me and I am managing it through an app. I love that because those are the stories that we connect with. And, and as you were talking about that, like a, a few different TikToks have come to mind where people started up and you, maybe they were laid off or, 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 you know, something happened where they lost their job and they started up a little side hustle out of their home. And now watching some of those artists move from an Etsy store into an e-commerce store and then graduate, like you said, from, from packing all of the orders within their home office or even just a, a you know, a bedroom, part of the bedroom, and then moving it into a larger space. Those are the stories that I feel like still need to be told in in, in the world of logistics. So you hit the nail on the head. Yeah, absolutely. Now, and by the way, ShipBob is on TikTok and they do some really great fun content about like picking and packing and shipping. And that was, I think what was so fun there was that, you know, people don't always think about B2B being on TikTok, but it works so well for ShipBob because so much of what they do is tied to that physical output. So it lends itself very well to images, to video, and obviously to TikTok. <laughs> oh, awesome. I, I wanted to, I re, I'm resisting the urge right now to pick up my phone <laughs> and, and go give them a follow because I'm sure that's going to be some great content coming out of there. Um, now, now, moving on to our next topic, uh, I, I've heard you mention the importance of building communities. Now, in a world dominated by social media algorithms, that I've been told a few different times that you need to move and to start building a community. But as a marketer, what are the challenges? And I, I guess maybe some some tips that you can give us on, on how to build a community that's independent or maybe complementary to social media. Yeah, it's it's tough, right? Because community is it needs to start on a very on a very organic level where mm. you can't build a community and then bring it to people and expect them to, to engage with it. Right. You need to, um, you know, you, you build a community and you have to do a lot of things that don't scale. Right. Like, um, some of the most successful community builders I know are doing a lot of things that don't scale. They are, mm. um, these community builders are calling community members one-on-one -on, -one on the phone, having conversations with them, understanding why they joined, what they want out of the community. So that's a really key thing that I think community builders need to be aware of. Like, why are people joining? And there's also just give them a reason to join. And a, there should be a reason that the community exists. Hmm. Um, where I have seen communities not do well is when the community builders are are maybe they're marketing managers whose leadership told them, hey, go build a community, make it happen. And they're like, okay, now I'm building a community. Like right. this is more, there needs to be like some kind of organic um, like traction or some seed of interest, whether it starts out maybe with a really engaged TikTok following, Twitter following, or maybe you have a strong email list where you have like 10 people who consistently reply to you and say, hey, thank you for this, or I have a question those are the people who are going to be your most active community members, the, the, the strongest champions for your community. So I would say tap into that. Um, and I think, um, yeah, and I think, you know, there, there's, there isn't really any one set place to start. It's really just where the people are and then building mm -hmm. from there in a way that makes sense for them in a way that makes ongoing engagement easier. Yeah, because I, I I've been invited to a few different um, logistics communities, and my first thought is, oh, there's another social network that I have to be a part of, and it just gets exhausting. So it's 
And then you're also told as a marketer to go out and 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 do all the things. So it's 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 difficult at times to to know what to do and what not to do. Um, so so that brings me to my next question. As far as like any kind of tools that you're using, whether it's to 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 build a community or to to help with social media posting, are there any tools that are out there that within your tech stack that are absolutely must-haves? Yeah. So I I like to so for Twitter, I like using ILO.so for analytics. It gives you some nice visualizations and graphs of um, engagement, follower count, that kind of thing. Um, I also really like using Zapier for um, not even just content creation or management, but also for day-to-day management. So uh, one quick example would be, I have two calendars, right? My personal Google calendar and my work Google calendar. And my husband and I are sometimes coordinating on like, you know, things like I have a meeting at this time. Can you watch our child at this time while I do my meeting? And so there's a lot of um, a lot of logistics involved for us to manage our day to day. So I use Zapier to copy events from my work calendar into my personal calendar. Um, it was, you know, it was like 10 minutes of, of upfront work for me. And then now everything's automatically copied. And so my husband can look at my personal calendar and know, you know, what meeting I'm in at that given moment. Smart. That's really smart because yeah. <laughs> I think that that's one of my biggest uh, hangups right now is just communicating schedule availability. I mean, you can have like calendar tools out there that, hey, you know, schedule a link via this, via this. But sometimes it feels a little rude to send that instead of um, just, you know, manually replying to people. Yeah, um, I know you mean. I would add to that for the calendar link stuff. Something, a way I've kind of gotten around some of the awkwardness is asking other people for their calendar link. Like I don't, I don't even have one. I just say, do you have one? Let me book a time on your, on your calendar. And it's much oh, easier. Smart. That way. <laughs> yeah. Cause then, I, I mean, sometimes I just feel like a jerk, like, Hey, here's, you know, thanks for your email, but here's my link. Let's, let's <laughs> set up a time to talk. And it just right. f- sounds very like egotistical. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm just too, too much in, in my own head, but it's, it's one of those things where it's like, this makes my life easier, but does it make their life easier? Right. Um, and I, am I sending I, yeah. the, the wrong impression? I like to think it makes it easier because then they can, they can look at their own calendar and decide like, great, these five times, I want this time, the first one of the day that works best for me. <laughs> now, now, going back to Twitter for a second, you had a great thread the other day about the power of a case study. Where do most people get it wrong when it comes to case studies? Um, there's a good case study will take you a long time to create. It'll take you a long time to source that perfect customer, that perfect client, um, really listen to their story, retell that story in a, in a verifiable way. So I think I think sometimes, you know, some marketing teams are like, got to get more case studies. Let's do like three a month. That's too much to me. I think you can be a lot more impactful by doing one case study per quarter even, if, if, if that's what you need to do. Um, and so by quality, what I mean is one of the most impactful things you can do for, for a strong case study is get not your metrics for success, but your customers, the the way your customer is tracking success with the use of your services, your tool, your software, whatever it is that you are creating. Um, That's what really matters, right? Because, you know, if you have a corporate messaging app like Slack, you can say, you know, within one week, all employees sent a collective 100,000 messages. Okay, that's nice. Don't know what that means for someone you know, outside looking in, but what does it mean for that company? Maybe that company realized, oh, in using Slack or this other messaging tool, we realized we reduced five hours of meetings per week per person. Like that's incredible. And that's mm-hmm. the kind of thing that maybe that messaging app wouldn't be able to track. That's what you learn by talking to your customers, by listening to their stories, by listening to their personal stories of like how it, an end user or a person in their company really connected with that product. Um, so that's really important. And I think ultimately it's it aligns better with the customer's incentive. Um, mm-hmm. Your customer isn't eager to brag about you or talk about your product. Your customer wants to talk about how they were successful with your product. Smart. Yeah, because I, it, it, we, we tend to forget that the internet is selfish. 
They don't care about you. They care about themselves and finding uh, what they want to find, when they want to find it. And sometimes it's entertaining. Sometimes it's inspiring or educational. Um, But it has to be one of those things in order for them to even appreciate it to begin with. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm glad that you brought up the, the, the topic of, you know, putting the case study in the perspective of, of what is the, the, the ROI that we're going after and what's the ROI that the, the, the customer is going after because that essentially is, is what marketers are sort of tied to as far as performance metrics are concerned. Do, do you, how are, are you selling content marketing today as an investment to you know, say the C-suite as far as you know, what the ROI? When they ask that question, what, what answer are you giving them? Yeah. So I think what's what's interesting about this now is I, I think more and more people in the C-suite are kind of understanding the value of content. But, you know, what's tough is that a lot of this is long term. Um, and this, this is why I call content marketing an investment. It's an investment, not a cost center. It is, you know, when you invest in high quality content, whether it's sourcing subject matter experts who are writers, um, sourcing great editors, taking some time to understand SEO and making sure your blog is adhering to some SEO best practices, um, investing in, in shows like this, right? Like high quality content that meets people where they are and the way that they want to digest it. Um, but I also think that you can think about that and you can also think about the short-term wins with content. And this is also why I love case studies so much. Case studies to me are, they help you realize that high ROI in content in the short term. You can Hmm. work, you as a content marketer can work really hard on a case study for like two weeks, get a really strong story together, and then give it to your sales team and help them close a deal. That's a short-term goal it can meet. Um, Other things that content teams can do will be, you know, partnering closely with events teams, um, making sure that the content they're creating is aligned with the event strategy, working closely with PR teams. I love when content and PR teams work closely together because a lot of the work that each of them do can really support each other. So mm-hmm. an example would be, you know, content marketers, they're already doing a lot of research on the industry in which the company plays in, um, finding third-party stats, um, verifiable data. PR teams can use that information. They can use those same things as talking points to to really uphold their messaging. So that's a short-term win, you know, getting, being able to source strong research or third-party data that can be used in a press release or in media messaging. That's absolutely a win. Hmm. I love that. And, and it, it's such a, it, it's a good segue to, to my next question because a lot of these, well, I guess, yeah, it, a lot of these marketers are, are one man operations or one woman operations. And it, it giving them so many things at once, especially all of the things that we've talked about in this show, it can sort of feel overwhelming. So for those one person teams, what 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 are two to three tactics or, or strategies would you tell them to invest their time in right now in order to get, you know, sort of the, the, the best bang for their buck time-wise? I think the best bang for their buck will be um, deepening focus and expertise in the channels that are already working mm-hmm. or getting the most out of what you already have. So if you have, and I I think that my, that most often tends to be in an email list um, because they probably have some customers or some prospects, people they're actively marketing and remarketing to. That's a really, that's a really great focus because Mm -hmm. you have the email address, you have the name, they vaguely know who you are. Such a good opportunity to strengthen and build that relationship. Um, And then I would also say focusing on a channel that has built-in distribution tends to be social media. Um, it'll depend you know, on where the target market is, but this might be Twitter, it might be LinkedIn or Instagram. Um, my strongest hunch is that it's probably Twitter and LinkedIn yeah. for, the most, <laughs> for the most part, right? Where, where people are, where decision makers are, are looking at content and stuff like that. But I call those content channels with built-in distribution because it's, it really is both, right? Like you're using... Taking Twitter as an example, you're using the opportunity for Twitter threads to show your expertise, to explain something. You're writing something, you're creating there, but it's also the distribution platform. That's where people already are. That's where they're going to be sharing, uh, retweeting, liking that content. 
Yeah. So I guess I should probably change my Twitter strategy from complaining about the Jaguars into more of, you know, the expertise of, of, of what I'm talking about now. Or, hey, maybe you do a thread on, you know, eight ways the Jaguars can improve for the next season. <laughs> well, let, well, let's hope only one of those includes the quarterback position. So if we can do that, I think that, that, that my complaints will be held to a minimum for the first time in a decade. That would be amazing, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And, and finally, uh, Amanda, uh, you plan on to start co-hosting the show Office Hours with Rand Fishkin of, of Spark Toro. Uh, tell us a little bit about that show, what you hope to accomplish with it, and, and where folks can, can tune in. Yeah, we're very excited about it. Um, the series starts next Thursday, August 5th. Um, at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Uh, office hours is going to be every about every other Thursday or so, an ongoing show where we, I, I'm basically calling it having myself and Rand Fishkin as your personal marketing advisors for an hour. We're going to oh, wow. have it, we will have a short presentation on, you know, on an overall topic. Um, we're kicking off with um, a short presentation on, on how agencies and consultants can get the most out of SparkToro. Um, and then we have some questions that I'm taking from people in our email list so far. And then, you know, you can sign up. It's completely free to join. Ask your questions about marketing strategy, audience research, um, all that good stuff. Um, we are hosting it on Crowdcast. So you can find us on Crowdcast. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at Amanda Nat, and you can learn more there. And then sparktoro.com. That's the tool, uh, the website where you can access the tools. And yeah. Perfect. Well, I, I'll make sure to link to all of those in the show notes so you guys can can find all of that information and all of Amanda's great insight uh, pretty quickly and pretty easily. So so thank you again for, for coming on the show and, and thank you for your perspective. It is really valued and really appreciated. Thank you so much, Blythe. This was so much fun. Thank you. And finally... I briefly mentioned this during last week's show, but I'd like to have a few minutes to, to, to give this the time that it, it fully deserves. And that's how to be a good podcast guest. Now, as the, the industry sort of still is growing, you know, over the last year, we've seen an explosion in content and supply chain and logistics style content. And, and really that was driven from the pandemic. And now that, you know, we have a lot of shows that, that are solidified, a lot of folks are going to be asked to become a podcast guest, or maybe you you want to be a guest on other different shows. So there was an article that I ran across from Alex Greenwood. It was on Medium. He's a PR pro, social media strategist, all that jazz. And he listed out his tips for being a good podcast guest. And from the article, he talks about general needs for every show you plan to be on. And, and this is something that I ask of guests that, that, that come on this show. But if you want to be a good podcast guest or even pitch yourself to other podcaster shows out there and it's to send the host and make the, the 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 make it as easy as possible on the show you're trying to be on to have all of the valuable information that you want to talk about in one email so if you could send over one email of a short bio a headshot um, bonus points if you phonetically spell your name because I know that that helps people like me who sometimes I, I see a word and I'm like, oh, I don't know how to pronounce that, um, which is probably a similar feeling to, to how folks, whenever they see my name, react to it as well. Um, but sending over an email with a short bio, um, your, your full name, uh, social media handles, um, and then a headshot, that really goes a long way, especially from a distribution standpoint because after a show is over, you want them to share that insight or that information in their show notes or in a blog post. And they will, because they already have that information, it's much easier for them to include that in their distribution so that they can share it with their audience. Because I mean, that's ultimately the reason why you're going on the show is, is to, to share your perspective with that audience. And if the audience likes it, you want to be able to make it as easy as possible for them to, to follow more of your work. Now, a couple of the su suggestions that he also had that I really liked is to prepare at least three stories to tell because being a great podcast guest isn't about answering questions. It's about telling stories. So make sure to have three relevant stories that you can tell throughout the interview. And then you want to make sure that you tell your network about your appearance, share it after you've been on the show, um, and also relax and have fun. Th those were a few of his tips that he gave out that really resonated with me and really helps, you know, sort of take that show to the next level where it's not just like a boring interview where you can actually have a fun and engaging conversation like the, the, the one that we had with Amanda earlier. And now, 
my bonus tips of what I will share, because I think that this is the most important when it comes to a show, is to avoid audio issues. Use headphones during your interview. You don't want to have speakers that are playing and and that it, it distracts the audience because then they can hear your speakers along with what you're saying as well. So try to use headphones for every single interview that you have. Also, turn your computer sounds and notifications off. It's very distracting to be interviewing someone and then to hear their email notifications going off or their Slack channel um, going off. That, that's, that can deter the audience away from the things that you're trying to talk about. So avoid those audio issues by using headphones, Turn mute all of your, your sound notifications from your computer. And then I would also say to make sure you tell other people that you're not to be disturbed. You are in a meeting, you are you know, you're, you're, you're in the interview process. You don't want people barging into your office. You don't want people barging into maybe it's a home office. So just keep those things in mind. And then bonus tip, last one, bring some water. It is very normal. I, I have water next to my desk all the time and I sip on it periodically throughout the show because when you're talking a lot or if you're just nervous, it's natural to get that cotton mouth and it's natural that that you need to be able to, to, to swig some water really quick in order to keep the conversation going. Now, as we wrap up this show, I want to talk about uh, for the next month, uh, all throughout the month of August, we are going to be hitting the road. That's right. Cyberly is hitting the road for the month of August. We're going to be at Ignite Conference by PCS Software next week over in San Antonio. Then we're going to an annual agent conference by Armstrong Transport Group in the middle of the month. And we're gathering a ton of in-person interviews to air during the entire month of August. So now we all know that digital is great. Um, but really having those in-person interviews, just I feel like you get so much more out of it because you you have those social cues of, of being in front of someone versus a digital experience where sometimes that can be a little bit more challenging in order to get those, those social cues. And then finally, this is a little bit separate from Cyberly hitting the road because I want to give a shout out to uh, the producer... Since the inception of the show, Cyberly, our producer, Crystal, she is leaving to go to the esports world. And if you've liked something on this show, it's probably been her idea. And if you've hated something on this show, it's probably been my idea. Um, but she's off to join the esports world. And today is her last time producing the show. And so I just want to give a big, big thanks to all of her hard work and really everyone behind the scenes over, over at Freight Waves that, that helps to make this show possible. Yeah, I know you see me on camera. But it's one of those things where it's it's a lot of other people making this magic happen. It's not just me, you know, sitting in front of a camera doing the talking. That that's really the easiest part of the job. Whereas the rest of the team is responsible for for putting together and and, and distributing out to all of the different platforms. So really appreciate Crystal going to to, to miss her a ton. Um, but the show will uh, show has to go on, and hopefully we can have her on in the future to talk about the esports world. Uh, but until next week, we will be somewhat. We'll be live on the road uh, for next Thursday's show and during the entire month of August. Thank you everyone for tuning into the show. If you missed any part of it, go ahead and check out FreightWaves.com and you can watch the replay or listen to the podcast on your favorite podcast player, Spotify, Apple, all that jazz. You can find more of my work over at digitaldispatch.io and all of my social media channels, but we will be back next week, Thursday, 2 p.m. Eastern Standard Time and I'll see you real soon. 